This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, December 28th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I am Mike Pesca. By announcing that I am leaving Facebook, I feel I am doing my part to curb the influence of the tech behemoth. And I want to do my part, and that is why I am announcing I'm leaving Facebook. Now, to be clear, I am not leaving Facebook. Not actually. I will pretty much ignore Facebook and let it go on in the background and connect old high school friends to me. But it seems that making a grand announcement about leaving Facebook is the power pose of the moment, and I'm going to take that. It's like the guy who announces he's a vegan, but of course he'll still eat a little fish and eggs and maybe every so often a non-factory farm cow or chicken. In other words, not a vegan, not a vegan at all, but the announcement of veganism. I mean, Facebook existed so that we could permanently send out those long, braggy Christmas letters that updated people who you were once slightly close to about your family members that they were once slightly interested in. But now... That institution of a once a year braggy letter, that's what Facebook is all the time. Oh, and so much more, of course. It's also a disinformation multiplier. Yeah. But side note, I want to talk a little bit about those Christmas letters. Those are in the category of thing that exists. I mean, they do exist. They're real. But they exist, I don't know, by a 10 or 15 to 1 ratio as a premise for a joke more than an actual honest thing that people use. Another example of that phenomenon is making reference to your spirit animal. There are some people who believe in the spirit animal, but I would say the ratio is maybe 75 to 1 of people joking about the spirit animal as opposed to actually subscribing to the notion of the spirit animal. Another example of that invocations of playing the long game versus people actually playing the long game. And in a slightly different category from the self-satisfied Christmas letter, meaning a thing, a form of communication that almost can't be mocked because it is so imbued with mockery already. You've got morning TV shows and Trump speeches, also radio zoo crews. Tangentially related Not exactly in this, but maybe a subspecies of an offshoot of a different phylum is the haiku. I mean, what percentage of people who sit down to write a haiku do so because it's a wonderful form of poetry that best expresses their depth of emotion? And what percent say, hey, that's funny, I'll turn it into a haiku. No one wants to read your clever within quote marks haiku, goddammit. That was haiku. So I'm leaving Facebook, 
But sort of like I left a necktie with a slight stain on it in my closet, I tell myself maybe it's still useful. Mostly it does its job, except for the fact that its job is to make me look presentable. And in that, it actually does the opposite. That's like Facebook does the opposite of bringing the world together and increasing the sum of human knowledge. I mean, they charge six bucks to clean a necktie. Isn't it easier just to get a new necktie? I mean, maybe I could wear it as part of a V-neck sweater thing, just like I could check in on Facebook every few months to see if any members of my old high school production of The Crucible will be getting together for a reunion. And I will say, hey, that's a great idea, a Crucible reunion, but I will never mean it. And that mirrors the depth of my intention in the area of necktie rehab. Facebook, I do think is more good than bad. I mean, I do not think for the vast, vast, vast majority of use cases that badness attends to it. Via Facebook, I can keep vague tabs on people who I maybe conceptually like to keep vague tabs on, and they can do the same to me. And it's also a way to share viral stories that really shouldn't be important if we all kept things in perspective. I mean, whose fault is this, Facebook or ours? But of course, when Facebook goes wrong, it can be a pretty good tool for misinformation, which I'm not susceptible to, and you're probably not susceptible to. Then again, we probably both thought that we wouldn't splash this Putinesca sauce on our neckties, rendering them semi-unusable. So I am forthrightly and loudly and proudly announcing that I will no longer be using Facebook, even though I really will a little bit every once in a while. Please don't tell Zuckerberg this. Please don't let him know about the real details of my boycott, though I am going to bet that the algorithm already picked it up. On the show today, the actor and now director, Andy Serkis, is in. He has a new Netflix film, Mowgli. It's a different take on The Jungle Book, one that the greatest motion capture performer of all time, that circus, one that he oversaw. Also, the star of Mowgli, Mowgli himself, sits in. Rohan Chand is just this incredibly poised and charming young man, and I hardly ever thought about him. That kid was raised by wolves. That's all up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, you're listening to The Gist right now. But do you ever wish you could get more of it? Are you that insane? Well, maybe not more in the audio form, but in the written form. We've got just the thing, The Gist's Saturday newsletter. Every issue has links to the best stuff that I've been reading, listening to, and watching, plus the answer to our on-air trivia question and links to every episode in case you missed any. It's a good way to organize the week. Sign up now at Slate.com slash Gist News. That is Slate.com slash Gist News. And we'll see you in your email inbox every Saturday. Offers to appear in your email inbox are figurative only. Okay, bear with me now, because I'm going to go somewhere with this. Movie making and acting on the screen is a kind of alchemy. You've probably heard that analogy. And I chose it for a reason. 
Because alchemy is the magical belief that lead could be turned to gold, just as Christian Bale becoming Dick Cheney or Brando becoming Don Corleone is a transformation and it seems magical. But did you know that alchemy was actually possible through particle accelerators, through massive blasts of energy? It is possible, though extremely expensive, to turn a metal like, eh, if not lead bitumen into gold. But at that point, it doesn't seem like magic. It seems like science. And here's where we come to motion capture in our analogy. Because there is an equivalent with this type of acting, because computers are involved and screens are involved. And at some point, it seems like more science than magic. But my guests today prove that it is still alchemy. Andy Serkis is, I'm going to say, the greatest motion caption picture performer the world has ever known. Gollum, Caesar and Planet of the Apes, uh, Snoke in the Star Wars movies. He's now in a bit and directs perhaps the most ambitious motion capture movie I've ever seen. Mowgli, Legend of the Jungle, named for the main character in the Jungle Book. It is a sometimes sinister and often frenetic film. By the way, Rohan Chand, who's Mowgli himself, he is with... Me also. Thank you, gentlemen, for coming in. Thank you. Thanks, God, what an introduction. That was yeah. amazing. It just, went, it just went on for a while, thus cutting into all the questions I want to ask you it's guys. It's good, though, the way you came back. It, it made sense. So. <laughs> good, good. You learned something. How old are you? I'm 14 now. No, that was to Andy. No, it was to you. <laughs> and when you, when you were filming the movie, how old were you? Yeah, so I got involved in this back in 2014 when I was 10 years old, and that was the first time I shot it for, like, with uh, the primary cast, Christian, Kate, uh, Benedict, these are <laughs> Benedict. I love a fourteen-year-old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just toss that off. So it's Cumberbatch. It's Kate Blanchett. It's, yeah. it's it's Christian Bale who I right, mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was primarily to capture their performance. I would uh, come in later for uh, for my performance. So that being said, I came back like five or six months later, something like that, back into in two thousand and fifteen when I was eleven years old. And for that, I worked with different performance capture actors who were not there for the performances. They were more there for the movement and also for my reference. But I mean, that was a challenging thing because I would have to remember how like a Christian played it um, while acting across from someone who plays it very differently. Obviously, I mean, everyone, every actor plays a character differently. And so were uh, you re reacting to the man there uh, or were you reacting to your memory of Christian Bale's performance as the uh, the Panther? Well, yeah. So that was the challenge because I would kind of have to keep it like my performance new and organic across from those people while kind of remembering how Christian played it because... You know, I, I would have to use Christian for reference while still acting across from someone who's who's very different and taking stuff from both of them. Almost, I would take Christian's performance and their movement, kind of almost combine it in my head. I but guess. To be fair, that also they they did it that we cut. We have a cut of this movie, which is just like the entire film of the actors' performances. So, the the first portion that Rowan's talking about, what we did was we cut the scene so that the actors who are going to come in, the performance capture artists who are going to come in and emulate, they were going to emulate the performances that they right. and the rhythm of the scene. So that. So what are they trained as? Acrobats? They're, they're all actors. They're yeah. all actors, but particularly good. At physicality mm -hmm. and I mean for instance so what Ron's talking about is in terms of reference they were there sometimes there were two actors to play a quadruped animal so they would be connected by a, a flexible spine they would sometimes Rome would inevitably be looking into the eyes of those actors on, on, on the real physical sets he would he was using his emotional memory to kind of connect with that but but they were trying they, they did a really good job of, of, of emulating uh, the, the actors that, that had played it first time around so in the film we see your character to jump on the back of the panther. Did you jump on Christian Bale's back? Yeah, actually, funny story with that. <laughs> I remember. I remember I'd actually have to jump on a Christian's back. 
and I would start slipping off when he starts running because of all the performance capture gear. And that was really funny because I remember like when he reached kind of the edge, I was almost like completely just hanging on for dear life onto his back. When but, he yeah. seems like so intense an actor and Kate Blanchett seems like could the, maybe the best female actor in the world today. I don't know if they're what they call method or intense, but but he's also working with you who is 11 years old. Does he, do you know if he changed his normal staying in character all the time intensity to interact with Rohan a little bit? I mean, they had a fantastic relationship and they, and they did really, there was very playful. And, uh, you know, I think, I think one of the things that drew Christian to want to do this job was to explore another uh, aspect of the craft and to see what was really, what it, you know, what it really is about, you know, I've, and I mean, to give you an example, when, because when, he's done action movies, but they're, Batman and there are special effects, but he's yeah. not doing the massive acting against technology. That sure, this but, is. but in actual fact, when all of the actors came came and sat around the first, you know, the big table read at the beginning of principal photography, and they said, "Andy, what's what is the secret of performance capture acting?" And I said, "There is no secret. It's not a type of acting. You're not you're not changing what you do. You are actors who are playing characters. Yes, of course, if you're playing a panther, then go study behavior, go work out what the physicality is. You know how it's going." inform you but you'd do that if you're going to go and play a banker or dick cheney or whoever you'd go and do the research that's 101 that's where you start then it's like how do i make this me how do i make my version of bagheera what how do i what what part of me my humanity do i cross over in the venn diagram with the animal did you think of the the animals in this movie as closer to King Kong, who was really a gorilla, a giant gorilla, but you weren't meant to imbue him with humanity per se, or closer to Caesar, who is an ape who's sentient and a biped? Yeah, yeah. I mean, with, with obviously with 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 Caesar, he is an ape plus. Really, he's he's the recipient of a drug that's changing him and evolving him, and he's learning how to use human speech using a proto language at first, and then it begins to, you know, as things are changing, it becomes, you know. Know, the speech patterns become faster and as he's thinking quicker he begins to be more eloquent linguistically but these are these animals they can speak off the bat they are they are pretty much humans mm -hmm. who happen to be animals it's like it's like that's why uh, you know in our movie 70% of the movie is shot in close-up on the animals' faces because I wanted them to be... I wanted the animals to be actors. Right, and because... It's a drama with animals. And because they read as having heavy elements of some of the greatest screen actors of our age. So yeah. why not do many close-ups of Christian Bale if you have Christian Bale? A hundred percent. But but it was more, more to do with the fact that it's... Because it's an emotional story, an emotional kind of journey of an emotionally-centric story uh, about an outcast, about being an outsider about being other to support that emotional heft i suppose of of storytelling you you needed to be close you don't want to be on wide vistas and spectacular jungle sets and i mean we have that but we don't languish there we want we want to get really close up and up, up, up close and personal with this you know was the first role of this kind that you took was a golem in lord of the rings yeah, yeah yeah that was the first time who taught you how to do this nobody because there's nothing to be taught in a way it's as i say it's 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 um it's just acting it's it's becoming a character i, I could only become Gollum by moving in that particular way and you know expressing his voice through a, a constriction in his throat born out of guilt you know it's it's a kind of it's the physical and psychological is always bound together and and the great thing about this way of working is unlike I mean look don't get me wrong I love animation movies of course you know but actors who stand in a booth for a few hours and, and then allow a, a, a team of animators to create it's really the, the animators who are the actors in that sense mm -hmm. 
in, in this, it's you are the guardian of the role. You're on set with a director, with other actors, and you're living that character, being that character, you know, from page one to 120 of the script or from day one to 96 of the shoot. You know, you're, 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 the, you're the guardian of the role. And that's, uh, you know, what, what, what has really excited me and fired me up about this technology is that, is that it, it is this extraordinary um, bunch of cameras, different set of technology that allows you to become anything. You know? So, Andy, you've been in a number of film franchises that are myths and mythical. Obviously, Tolkien was trying to play with the myths. And you could argue that the Marvel movies you were in Black Panther. Those are the new myths. Then there, are, there is a difference, though, between myths and, you know, I, I know that uh, George Lucas with the Star Wars movies says he was influenced by Joseph uh, Campbell. But there's a difference between myths and a story. How did you think of this? Were you trying to tell a myth? Were you trying to tell a story with mythical elements? How did that inform you? Uh, I think I think it's an allegory. You know, I think mm-hmm. it's it, it, it's an allegorical story. And, uh, you know, it, it's a, it, it is a story. And, uh, I mean, there is a sort of a hero's journey in there. And and it's a very com- convoluted and complex one because it's it's not you know it, it's it's about self discovery you know I mean obviously here a lot of heroes journeys are about self discovery but but this is about the, because it's sort of turned on its head and it's about being an outsider. I do love operating in this space because you can say something about the human condition that that sometimes is very difficult to portray in a more realistic way, right? And 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 can resonate and obviously reach a bigger audience and that's the great thing about playing in this space on the on these kinds of canvases you're you do have huge reach and you can say you you can be more honest in a way and and there's an innocence about about allegorical storytelling in a way that that is inclusive and universal and and can really you know portray some rather deep things about 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 how we function how we are in the scenes where you act and this is something that's been going on for almost as long as movies have existed, that the director has acted in some scenes and there are ways to cover it and the DP maybe is in charge that day. But any special considerations in a movie of this type and with the technology we're talking about? Well, I I counted a lot on my... um uh, the, the the motion capture actor team, you know, uh, my sort of an actor called Ben Bishop sort of would stand in for me sometimes and read with Rowan so I could focus on, on the framing up of the shots. And then, and then, I mean, one of the big challenges that we had, of course, was working with Rowan. We only had him for five hours every day because of the, of the, of the working law. So that, I thought you uh, skirted that by filming internationally. <laughs> I thought the South Africans d- no, had more lax no, rules. No, 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 no. It was, it's very strict. And yeah. so, and so um, that, that was always a big, that, that was one of the biggest challenges, actually, was was because inevitably I, I would find myself having to, uh, uh, you know, accommodate for that. And that that was, I think, the most trickiest thing of all was the scheduling of that. And but actually being on set, being Baloo, we managed to sort of condense those scenes into bunches of days. So it, it didn't spread out too much, you know. And the the one thing that I would imagine may be a bit disappointing. It got a theatrical release, but this is very much the kind of movie that wants to be shown on as big a screen with as good a projection as possible. I mean, there is a, a really amazing 3D version of this movie and and perhaps my favorite, actually. But have to, having said that, the global reach that Netflix has given this movie and the ability to, you know, we had this, we had, I, look, 
as I said at the beginning, we you know we we knew that this was a slightly edgier film, and it 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 felt like it the, it would do well internationally, that it would really reach an, an international audience. A lot of it is about the perception of this film um, not being the 1967 animation or based on the 1967 animation. That is its own. This is its own thing closer to the book. So so the the blessing about Netflix, and and it really is a blessing, is that we have been able to been able to you know have our premiere in Mumbai open you know the film where it, where it belo- where it comes from um and then have this massive global reach to 190 countries and people see the film without without f- you know having to worry about an opening weekend box office and and so so ultimately it it is the be- the best of all possible worlds and th- i i think netflix are in a really interesting p- place at the moment because they do have ambitions to be to, to have more theatrical i think and i think that they uh, they've certainly honored the i mean that was one of the main things what i asked about when there was the transition from warner brothers to netflix and i i think they'll get to a point where i think they're going to get to a point where they don't have to be mutually exclusive you know if you want to watch it on your device if you want to watch it on your iphone and you can't wait you know and it comes out and it's there then great and if you want to go and spend some money and see it in you know 3d in a cinema you can the one happy um kind of accident um about our movie and i alluded to it earlier is the fact that a lot of it actually is close up it is they are talking heads. Right. And so it does right. actually work. It does actually work on a smaller screen. It's kind of the most intense television show going. <laughs> yes. The name of the movie, which is right there if you have Netflix and the 3D version, uh, must be amazing. The name of the movie is Mowgli, Legend of the Jungle. And I was talking to Mowgli himself and the director of the film, Rohan Chand and Andy Serkis. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. And now the spiel. You know what I'm good at? We all have our talents. We probably will never get to use them. You ever think about this? Like Patton was a good general, but to be a good general, you probably have to be a good soldier and you have to march and you probably have to be physically strong. But what if you just have a a great brain for, for tactics and generalship? Most of us will never know it, right? We'll never know how great an army general we could be. Or maybe... Maybe the greatest general of today would only be okay during the Civil War and vice versa. Same thing. I'm never going to be in this position, but I think I would be really good at punishing, like making punishments, making the punishment fit the crime. You give me a crime and I will tell you what the punishment should be. I'd be really good at the sentencing phase. I'd go by logic. I'd factor in the overall cost to society. It's not always possible to do so, but sometimes it is. And we had a recent example that I think I could punish really, really well. But before we get to my sentence, listen to these sentences that will tell you of the crime. London's Gatwick Airport, Britain's second busiest, remains closed after drones were spotted nearby yesterday. More than 600 flights have been canceled at an airport that serves 110,000 travelers a day. And then, after a time, Gatwick Airport was open, only to be closed again. Now, I was among many people asking, why couldn't police just shoot down the drone? I mean, a few people said, can't you just shoot down the drone? There is a, uh, experience. Well, more than a few. I would say a podcaster in New York City, an idle runway attendant in Dubai, a mother in Ottawa counting the hours until her Sussex-based daughter came home for the holidays, and, of course, every single person waiting on a runway and most of the U.K., 
overall. But I interrupted Chris Grayling, Minister of Transport. There is an uh, experience recently elsewhere in the world of literally thousands of machine gun bullets being used to try and bring down a drone, failing to do so. And of course, you can't just fire weapons haphazardly in what is a built-up area around the airport because there are consequences if, if that goes wrong. Okay. So, Ah, excessive concerns for the effects of bullets and gunfire. <laughs> How very English. The authorities did make a couple of arrests, however. There was a couple who lived near the airport who were described as drone enthusiasts. Well then, case closed. Only the case is still open because the authorities seem to have less than authoritatively arrested the wrong people. They backtracked. They cleared the couple. They apologized. The couple gave a heartbreaking news conference in which they cited their torment and emotional distress. And still, 140,000 people, yes, 140,000 people were delayed. Now, I couldn't find information about the average delay, but the runways were shut down for 36 hours last Thursday and then again for another 80 minutes on Friday. So I'm going to be very charitable and I'm going to say three-hour average delay. Now, if you got there in the beginning of the delay, maybe you had time to go home. If you got there a few hours in, maybe you had to sleep in the airport. There were It was definitely more than an average of three hours, but I'm a merciful judge, and so I will factor in a three-hour delay, just being stranded maybe on the tarmac, maybe having to sleep at the airport. All right, here's the math. 140,000 people, my extremely generous three-hour delay, that's 420,000 hours. It works out to 50 cumulative years wasted, 49 years, 11 months. And that should be the jail term for this action. It's like when Spicoli ordered pizza and was disruptive in Mr. Han's class. Then at the end of the year, Mr. If you haven't watched Fast Times, you'll know that that is the formation. Hammurabi had his code. I had my Fast Times at Ridgemont High. You know, maybe it seems harsh to you. Oh, they're just flying a drone and to give them, you know, 50 years, almost 50 years in prison. But here's my thinking. They say the death penalty doesn't work. I agree. Lots of problems with the death penalty. I'll list the big one first. It just might be ipso facto immoral. Certainly the way they apply the death penalty is extremely haphazard, not only unfair on, you know, racial grounds and class grounds, but it's too haphazard to be effective. No one thinks they're reasonably going to get the death penalty. People think they won't get caught. People don't factor in the consequences of their actions. It just doesn't deter crime. They say also we don't want to live in a society that's so punitive that you would take away a person's freedom from minor crimes. And I think that's true. I don't want to live in Saudi Arabia. I don't want to live in Singapore. You know, people sometimes do commit crimes because they have no other choice. Crime is bad, but punishment should be at least appropriate, not disproportional. We should have mercy. We should believe in rehab. But, you know, I got to say, with most of the crimes that we take this into account. They're crimes that have existed for thousands of years. Crimes interwoven into human experience, which tells us that no amount of punishment will eradicate those crimes. Jean Valjean stole bread, and he kept getting time added to his sentence, and he sang, oh, did he sing, and he dreamed. He dreamed a dream. Yes, I know that was Fontaine. But there are some crimes that are new. And when a new crime comes along, we have the opportunity to take them very, very seriously or brush them off as a prank. There is no crime right now 
to selling ads to Fancy Bear and Russians using that to influence our elections. So that means that happens and it very much sucks. But if we have serious, serious penalties for some of these new things, like joking about a bomb in the airport, guess what happens? Very few people joke about bombs in airports. In fact, if you're listening to this via, I don't know, headphones that leak a little in your airport, I'd skip this part. Because I'm going to mention, just mention joking about bombs in airports. I don't joke about bombs in airports. And not only do I joke about everything, like a moth to a flame, when they say don't joke about a bomb in an airport, I'm very tempted to. Yet I know the severity of the penalty, and I, a person who looks at life through a lens of mockery, will not even joke about a bomb in an airport. Sometimes draconian laws work. Think about threatening the president. You could say, nah, I didn't mean it. But we take that very seriously because we as a nation put a high priority on that office, or we did before a year and a half ago. But we really, really, really don't want people to threaten the president. So we really, really, really punish threatening the president. And now we have these drones and drones are new and they can be massively disruptive. So we have the opportunity to make an appropriate punishment and we should make an appropriate punishment and that appropriate punishment should be the cumulative delay time of all the people who were burdened and that should be visited upon the perpetrators. We, of course, need to get the correct perpetrators, not just some couple who are enthusiasts. And if it is a tandem, if it is a team, perhaps we could take those 50 years and apportion it accordingly to the team. Maybe we could use that fact to flip the low man on the drodum pole. But this will send a message. And we will certainly allow for parole and work release and rehabilitation. And let us be merciful in the circumstances of detainment. It should be a fairly cushy prison, but it should have four walls and a ceiling. Definitely a ceiling. We know how these people might think of escaping, but that is how we should punish the drone folk. Sorry to seem extreme or Hammurabian or like that of Draco, the first adjudicator of the law in ancient Greece, who gives us draconian. I, you know, here's a little, uh, I'm going to surmise that if it didn't sound like dragon and Ivan Drago, it wouldn't seem so mean. Like the word draconian seems harsh because of its associations, but maybe Draco was a good guy. He was just trying to help his kinfolk. Anyway, I might seem harsh, but all I am trying to do is maximize societal efficiency. And if you're not on board with this, I have similar sentencing guidelines for telemarketers, and I think that could win you over. As for Gatwick Airport itself, the runways are up and running. And in fact, today it was announced that a French company, Vinci Airports, will be taking control of Gatwick. They bought Gatwick, essentially, for over $3 billion. Because if it's a smoothly efficient public works project, you want the French running it. They've got the yellow vests. They're quite good at shutting things down already. And now, unlike the turmoil at the eighth largest airport in Europe last week, I will no longer drone on. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre bien and Daniel Schrader. They're announcing that they're quitting Meerkat. Wait, Meerkat's done? Okay, Periscope. Periscope is next on their chopping block. TJ Raphael is the senior producer of Slate Podcasts. She has cut the rope on Cut the Rope. The Gist, and proudly announcing that The Gist is hereby quitting and turning its back on 2018. When you next hear my voice, it will be in the year of our Lord, 2019, our Lord being Mark Zuckerberg. 
Email us at thegist at slate.com or hit us up on facebook.com slash slate gist. I won't be there, or maybe I will, live blogging my story of leaving Facebook. To old acquaintance, be forgot and never brought to mind. Um peru, de peru, du peru, and happy new year. Old Lang Syne.